the value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Good day, everyone. I'm Ron Ansana, and welcome to the U.S. Lens. If you haven't noticed this year, it's been a rather tough four months now for equities, for risk assets generally, uh, against a backdrop of very difficult issues that the world is currently facing, whether it's lockdowns in China, whether it's the war in Ukraine, whether it's inflation raging in much of the world, or tighter central bank policies. All of those elements have combined to make it a very difficult year in which to invest even easily, given the ease with which investors were able to make choices over the last three years. Joining us now to talk about the global picture and where markets may go from here is Johanna Kirkland. She is Group Chief Investment Officer for Schroeders, who joins us today to talk about that and more. Johanna, thanks for being with us. Appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure. Let's start first just with the 50,000-foot view. As I just said, I mean, there's no shortage of issues plaguing the global economy, global financial markets at this juncture. What Just your overall take right now as to where we are relative to where we've been, where a lot of the easy money was made over the last three years, particularly in equities, domestically, as far as the U.S. is concerned, and abroad, been a lot tougher this year. Yeah, I think that obviously we'd had a good run. So in some sense, we were due more difficult markets. And then on top of that, of course, the Fed is now very serious about raising rates. And I think that poses a speed limit to returns effectively, because actually the cost of sitting on your hands is going down. Uh, So, yeah, I think for now, I'd continue to be a bit cautious on market direction. Now, everyone's asking, you know, for for qualifications, if you will, about the type of cycle we're in. Is it a correction? Is it a bear market? I've been in the bear market camp. Um, how, how would you characterize what we're seeing, both in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world? Because, with the exception of a handful of Latin American countries, Indonesia, and maybe Singapore, it's really been hard to find a market that is up year to date. Yes, I think that for me. For a long time, we haven't seen a proper rate cycle. And the problem with rate cycles, of course, is they tend to trend. So once the Fed starts raising rates, I think that this will persist for a while. So I think generally, I think it's going to be difficult for equities to make significant headway against that backdrop. You know, whether I'd call it correction or bear market, I think it's an environment where it pays to be a little bit underweight equities, recognizing that relative to the returns on offer, the volatility um, is going to be elevated. So it's definitely a little bit more challenging. Now, to get more bearish, I'd have to think that the rate increases are going to cause a recession. Mm-hmm. And I think we're not quite there yet. I'm less worried about recession. For now, it's more about the market getting used to a situation where the Fed keeps on raising rates. Yeah, let me let me ask you about that. Because it, it, to some, that might be a distinction without a difference or a difference without a distinction that if the Fed were to raise interest rates, let's say four times in a row by a half, point. Some are projecting that the Fed could raise rates seven to 11 times over the next 12 to 18 months and begin next month reducing the size of its balance sheet by $100 billion a month to add a little insult to injury when it comes to credit tightening. If you see that type of action, does the risk of recession go up, not only in the United States, but maybe elsewhere in the world as well? 
I think it does eventually. So I think we need to make a distinction. So the bond market right now is moving to price in those Fed rate hikes, and that's really what's impacting the whole of the yield curve. For equities, I think what matters more is the impact on growth. And I think there, it takes a while for those rate increases to feed through to the real economy. So me, may I ask you about that? Because I, I, I wrote a piece not too long ago that there is no longer a lag uh, between uh, Fed policy and what happens in the real economy. We've already certainly seen it in the United States in, in the real estate market where single family home sales, pending home sales, mortgage applications have plunged. When I first got in the business in 1984, we didn't even know when the Fed raised interest rates. They would only tell us after the fact. Things like mortgage rates were based on obscure uh, interest rates like the 11th district cost of funds. It only changed monthly. We're seeing real-time changes in mortgage rates and other rates right now. Do you think maybe the Fed, if it does move too quickly, will have a more profound impact on the economy more quickly than it has in the past? I do believe there's still some some lags, though. So I think that what we're seeing is a peaking of growth momentum, which, again, is very consistent with the maturing of the cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that eventually sets up a valuation problem for equities, because on the one hand, you have yields going up. Uh, on the other hand, you see earnings revisions rolling over and eventually get to a point where valuations for equities are quite undermined. So that's what I mean. I think we're still... You know, when we do our models, we're still in the expansion phase, which is the beginning of a more difficult environment for equities. Really, to to get a lot more bearish, we need to start getting signals of a proper move into slowdown. And certainly based on our indicators for now, that's not what we're getting. I'm agreeing with you to some extent. It's just I think we need to be careful not to get too bearish too quickly. What then would define or, or increase in your mind the risk of recession. We see a lot of folks on the street saying that there's a 35% chance of recession in the next 12 months. I, I, that's almost a meaningless forecast in the sense that, you know, yeah, over any you know one-year period or two-year period, you might have that kind of risk. Um, what what drives you towards a, a greater risk of recession? Let's say by the end of this year. I think the greater risk comes via commodity prices and their transmission mechanism. Because if you look at what typically causes recessions is where you see a tightening of conditions that people are sort of powerless to reverse. Right. So that is obviously the worst type of scenario. The Fed is intent on raising rates right now. I think they do have some headroom to do that without causing a recession for now. Um, Eventually, of course, those rate hikes will bite. But I think we're somewhere away from that. Where the pressure starts to intensify is if you continue to see output pressure on commodity prices. And this might pose less of a challenge for the US, which is you know, more independent when it comes to commodities, but is still a major challenge for emerging markets where, again, food prices are very important. And for Europe, which is, as we know, quite reliant on energy from, from Russia. So that's the kind of thing I think we need to be focused on is the risk that due to geopolitical concerns, you actually end up with high commodity prices that would be justified just by demand. Uh, and in that environment, I think combined with rates, it starts to look like a perfect storm. Yeah. So let, let's take that a piece at a time. So China right, right now has locked down a third or more of its population in Shenzhen, Shanghai, possibly Beijing, Guangdong. I was looking at marine traffic data the other day that showed about a thousand ships off two ports in China that are just stuck in the water. That's creating an extended supply chain problem, which we at one juncture thought would have been gone by now. 
And then you've got, as you said, the energy disruptions and the food disruptions coming from the war in Ukraine and, and described potentially a perfect storm. It doesn't look like there's going to be in the near term, as many of us had hoped, any abatement in either supply chain disruptions or upward pressure on commodity prices. Is that what you yeah. think as well? I think we're still the risks are stagflationary. So, yes. And that's why, although commodity related investments have already done very well, we think they're quite an important hedge against the risks that we see. So definitely a stagflationary environment. Now, technically, can CPI peak from eight and a half percent? Yes, it can because of base effects. But is CPI going back to two percent? No, it isn't. So I think that is the concern. I think that people are focusing on base effects, which is really an academic issue. Ultimately, we weren't expected to see this level of supply bottleneck, you know, at this point. You know, if someone had told us last year that we're still in this position, we would have been concerned about physicist inflation. That is a concern. Let, let me, if you wouldn't mind, just defining the, the notion of base effects. I mean, obviously, uh, prices spiked coming out of, at least in the United States anyway, the pandemic and the U.S. government and other governments as well provided income replacement, maybe in excess of what was already there uh, prior to the pandemic. And so demand rebounded much faster than supply, put upward pressure on prices. But as you go year over year, when you talk about the base effect, what does it mean that inflation would appear to slow down when you use that expression? Basically, if you're comparing the level of prices this year to last year, the fact that they'd already spiked last year would naturally mean that you're likely to see a peaking in the rate of change of inflation. But the point is that the underlying inflationary pressure is still there. So what started as a supply bottleneck problem as people kind of got used to the pandemic um, has now morphed into a broader based rise in inflation, owner's equivalent rent, you know, tightness in the labour market, which has then been exacerbated by a fresh set of supply bottlenecks caused by a situation in China and in the Ukraine. Number two, what is your diversifier? Well, if you think there's going to be a stagflationary bias to your forecast, in other words, we're concerned that inflation could persist. Commodity-related investments are still an interesting um, exposure to have, even though they have rallied very strongly already. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. Now, let me ask you about the concept of stagflation. So, having grown up in that environment myself, um, it, it, in the last time we saw that or even used the word was an environment where post-Vietnam, we started to see an acceleration of inflationary pressures. We went off the gold standard. We had two oil shocks. We had policy mistakes. And it was really over a decade before we built to the level where we used the word stagflation, which at the time in 1980 was 13% inflation, 11% unemployment, and 20.5% short-term interest rates. And everybody kind of harkens back to this period. The stagflation that we're experiencing right now, while different in terms of magnitude, also happened in an extremely compressed time frame of one year. So is there an analog for us to understand what's going on right now, or are the conditions different even though the broad characteristics might be similar or this maybe even the same? I think there are some lessons to be learned from the 70s, but we need to be careful just to sort of rely on that comparison because when we talk about stagflation, at least here in the multi-asset team at Schroeder's, what we're talking about is an environment where inflation is exceeding um, real GDP growth. It doesn't actually mean GDP growth needs to be contracting 
uh, but ultimately that we have an environment where inflation is persistently high relative to the level of growth. So it's a deterioration in the growth and inflation trade-off. And I guess what's interesting is that uh, we are, you know, that would present a major regime change compared to where we've been over the last 10, 20 years. And I would argue that markets are still not fully priced for that kind of scenario. So whenever I look at historical parallels, the first question is, are there some economic patterns that are similar? I think there might be some patterns, um, although this time around, I think the, the sources of inflation are slightly different. But then also when you think about what is the market pricing and I think what's more dangerous. So this time around, I'd say the trade off between growth and inflation is not as horrendous as it was in the 70s. Mm -hmm. But I'm worried that markets are much more expensive than they were back then. And in particular, we've had, you know, an extended bull market in bonds, uh, which has underpinned also the valuations of equities. And so, you know, if we were to see a more persistent regime change, that's quite a major challenge for valuations from where we started. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, we've been talking about this now for quite some time that that trying to use uh, treasury bonds or kind of pure interest rate vehicles as ballast or a hedge in one's portfolio against potential weakness in equities isn't working right now. So well, how does that affect asset allocation questions and, and answers? Well, again, yes. I mean, that's what's led us actually to favor commodities over duration in, in the last year, really. There's been that view. Um, and I guess at these levels of yields, it's starting to be a little bit more interesting to own bonds. So I think that I guess where I've got to is I think you need to own commodities. They're much more diversifying right now against risks that we see. But actually, I wouldn't just abandon bonds altogether because we're actually entering an environment now where there are potential risks to growth. And I think some form of diversification is still appropriate through the use of rates, especially at this level of yields. But I still think you need it. And it's interesting that the front end of the market now is, is looking quite attractive in terms of what it's priced. Hmm. So I'm not a bond hater. Well, that's nice to hear. Um, <laughs> hate's a strong word. Yes, but you know what I mean? Say. There's some people out there who are quite evangelical about this. And yes, I think yeah. you need to be careful. Actually, when you get into more volatile regimes, I think being diversified actually is the first is, is the first priority. And that means also still having a bit of rates. Now, when people also talk about diversification, they talk about diversifying away from the United States. And that has not been a good trade so far this year. China's down the Shanghai composite's been down about 20 percent year to date. Emerging markets are having some difficulty, depending on where you look. I mean, with the exception of Latin America and with a strong U.S. dollar, at least as we talk about it through this U.S. lens, uh, emerging markets haven't been nearly as attractive uh, in that situation as well, dollars the strongest it's been since 2017. Let's start first with China and the lockdowns. It, it appears that they are willing to sacrifice growth uh, in exchange for this zero, zero COVID policy that may or may not be working really, but but clearly they're going to great lengths to try to uh, beat back COVID and, and it's having an economic impact, not just on countries that it exports to, but also in, internally as well. How do you see it shaking out? Well, I think the challenge is that, again, I mean, we were talking about what causes risks is sort of tightening conditions that you're sort of powerless to reverse. And we mentioned the commodity price transmission mechanism. I think COVID policy in, in China is in some sense another example. In theory, they could reverse the policy if they chose to, but I think politically it's very difficult to do that. 
Uh, and so for now, I think it continues to be um, a clear risk to, to growth coming out of China. Um, so, so, you know, when it comes to diversification, for me right now, it's about diversification by asset class. Mm-hmm. It's diversification maybe by style. I think that value can do quite well when rates are going up. I am not a big fan of geographical diversification because, I mean, obviously, we always own a broad range of economies and markets, but I think the U.S., is still offering um, uh, interesting opportunities. We used to like the US many years ago because of its technology exposure, because it was delivering superior earnings in a world where growth was scarce. The reasons for liking the US now are slightly different. Um, It's because um, actually it had a decent, you know, it's coped with COVID quite well. Uh, and it's less vulnerable to those commodity price increases. But the point is, I think the US is still a good place to be. And unfortunately, the rest of the world, in Europe, we have some major risks associated with Russia and Ukraine. So we're kind of at the epicenter of that geopolitical risk. We need to be careful of that. And obviously, you know, China being a dominant market in the emerging market indexes is a major headwind for emerging markets. Broader emerging markets also suffer from the risk of food price inflation. So when I look around the world at the impact of higher commodity prices, I think that the U.S. is relatively comes out looking quite good, actually, relative to the market. <laughs> well, is it, is it safe to say or is it, is it too crude to say that the United States is the best house in a bad neighborhood? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the other way I think about it is that the toast keeps landing jam side up for the U.S. Uh, <laughs> you have that terminology in the U.S., but, you know. Not really. <laughs> first they had the earnings, then they had the tech, then they had good COVID. Now that now they're less dependent on energy from outside. So, you know, generally things seem to be going in favor of the U.S. relative to other markets. So I'm not a big advocate of rotating away from the U.S., all right, so let's talk about energy security, and you mentioned Europe uh, in particular. Now, Russia has come out and suggested, uh, as in response to the potential banning of Russian energy exports in Europe, they've just cut off a large portion of their gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria, and they're weaponizing energy as, as part of the war in, in Ukraine. What is First, what does that mean to energy security in Europe? And then two, what does it mean to the transition towards green energy when at this juncture, many countries, even the U.S. to a lesser extent, are now grappling with the notion that fossil fuels are in great demand, even as all these countries are trying to wean themselves off them simultaneously. Well, I think the big message from the situation uh, in Europe is that what they need is a diversified approach to, to sourcing their energy. Uh, and that still means um, a commitment to the energy transition, uh, because ultimately, you know, Europe doesn't have an abundance of, of fossil fuel to rely on. Um, and yes, it does also mean still, but it does still rely does still rely on on fossil fuels as well. It can't just rely on renewables. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think the commitment to energy transition in Europe is still here. We've always said that decarbonisation is a path. You know, it's a dynamic path that will vary over time. And it's obvious that right now we're not ready just to switch to renewables. We're still reliant on fossil fuels. Um, But that doesn't mean that uh, there's less of a focus on energy transition in Europe. I still think that is a very strong strategic imperative uh, in Europe. But there is some irony here, isn't there, that um, just as the world has tried to make that shift, we had a exogenous event that's forcing the world back into the hands of, of carbon producers, if you will. Yes, I mean, 
And that's why, I mean, I don't, you know, we, we've been saying that, you know, on the path to net zero, you need to be careful in being too exclusionary early on, because the problem is that given the absence of alternatives, you end up really uh, reducing the flexibility of your portfolio and reducing the investment integrity of the portfolio. So that's why you kind of have to sort of, there's trade-offs to be had here. You want to sort of move in the right direction, but if you do it too quickly, you're actually undermining um, the quality of your portfolio. That, that has been one of the things that we've been discussing a lot with our clients. Um, yep. So I think that the, the general direction is right, but people maybe were a bit naive in the way that they were thinking about it and right. not recognizing that, that the, this is a dynamic situation. Final question, and I've been kind of thinking about writing this my, my, about this myself with respect to just the current state of the world that um, we're kind of throwing out the playbook that we've been accustomed to for, for quite a long time with respect to uh, financial assets leading uh, as an investment vehicle. Uh, the notion that there was permanent peace and prosperity is kind of getting tossed out the window. There are concerns about whether or not China will go after Taiwan as Russia goes after Ukraine and maybe even Moldova. You, you've got all these pieces moving at the same time. And, and I honestly, aside from the 30s as a very rough comparison, can't think of an analog for this environment. Have you come up with one? No, I completely agree with this. Um, you know, I've been managing money for 25 years and uh, I, I, and, and even if I look at, you know, through time, before I even started working, I cannot see any parallel for today's environment. I think we're in a highly disrupted world. I mean, the way I've been sort of challenging myself is thinking, what have I done over the last decade in my portfolios and challenging myself to do the opposite, just as a thought <laughs> experiment, right? Yeah. Um, because I think that... There's just such a confluence of disruption all at once, which is also what makes the 70s a difficult parallel because we've had, you know, global... Pan so first of all, we had the financial crisis in 08, which cast a very long shadow, which created a very extreme set of circumstances to begin with. You know, years of quantitative easing leading to extreme income inequality and ultimately increasing the political risk because the pie wasn't growing fast enough for the average person. That was the precursor to all of this. Then we've had a series of sort of catalysts. You know, we've had the pandemic. You know, as I think I've mentioned in other things I've written is you don't get that kind of um, event and not change the way people live to some extent. You know, yes. I compared it to the First World War, which changed working patterns. Yes. It's the same with the pandemic. And, you know, part of the supply bottlenecks we face is that basically there's been disruption in in work patterns and demand patterns, and that takes a long time to resolve. And then on top of that, we have the trend towards decarbonisation. So all of this happening at the same time means that you just can't look at historical patterns in the same way. The only thing that does, that you can look at history is the reality of a rising rate environment. You know, that we haven't had for a long time. And obviously, we can look at the rate cycle through history. And I think that gives us quite a good guide about where we need to go. So. So that's why I'm focusing a lot on the rate cycle, actually, because that's something that I know works. And um, in that, in some sense, what we're experiencing now has been seen before. But then so you have your core allocation based on the rate cycle. But then you have to overlay on top of that, as I said, these super cycles, decarbonisation, the impact of the pandemic uh, on top of that. But absolutely agree with you. Highly disrupted environment. Yeah. I lied. That was not my final question. Um, my final question is back to the Fed. Fed usually raises interest rates until something breaks. Yeah. Do you foresee that happening again? Yes, because I think they're so far behind the curve 
um, that in some sense, I think that they need to do that. Now, the question for me is what's actually ultimately thwarted the Fed's rate hike cycles in recent years has actually not been something breaking in the US, because the rest of the world couldn't stand it. Right. So that's the one thing that could prevent us once again from getting a proper rate cycle in the States. It's a state of the rest of the world. Um, and that would argue against some of the things I've said up until now, in the sense that, uh, you know, the weakness in China, the fact that emerging economies are, are facing significant food price inflation, um, you know, the, the cost of living crisis in, in Europe. I guess the risk is that the rest of the world can't take a tighter Fed. And that once again, the US economy ends up with a looser monetary policy than would be justified just by its domestic conditions. But ultimately, I think the Fed will keep going for now. Yeah. All right. Johanna, pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate your insights today. Thank you. Johanna Kirkland is Group Chief Investment Officer for Schroeder's joining us today. I'm Ron Insana. This has been the U.S. Lens. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroeders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroeder's podcast at schroeders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. Cheers.